The supply chain is shooting for the moon. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain. And this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. NASA's Artemis mission seeks to return humans to the moon for the first time since the Apollo program. But it's more than a matter of collecting rocks. This time around, the space agency wants to launch a permanent orbiting platform and eventually create habitation quarters on the moon's surface for extended stays. It's all being done in collaboration with the private sector, especially SpaceX, which has been chosen to build the lunar lander for Artemis missions. All of this, though, requires something quite familiar to any terrestrial project or business venture, an efficient supply chain. On this episode, I speak with Mark Wees, NASA's Deep Space Logistics Manager, about how the necessary equipment, food, and supplies will be provided to human crews through this joint government and commercial effort. And we'll discuss NASA's ambitions to extend the notion of a deep space supply chain all the way to Mars. Here is my conversation with Mark Weiss. Mark Weiss, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having us. Really fascinating topic, Mark. What exactly is involved in developing a deep space commercial supply chain for the missions that we're talking about here? So at NASA, our next big project is called Artemis. And what we're doing is we're pushing to go all the way back out to the moon, and we're doing it commercially. So we're going to go land the, the next woman, the first woman, and the next man out on the surface of the moon. And what's really important is that we're doing this hand-in-hand with commercial industry. So in the past, government has led a lot of the development. And with Artemis, we're trying to be that prime customer so that we can bring industry with us and buy down that initial investment but ultimately to really grow a commercial industry all the way out to deep space. We've got a, an annual mission where we'll send our crew out to the moon. We'll use our SLS rocket and our Orion spacecraft. Orion is kind of that high-performance sports car for our crew. Mm-hmm. And then what my team needs to do is we need to go pre-position all the supplies, all the logistics that will enable their stay. So Orion is designed to keep the crew alive and working for about three weeks. And when they get out the gateway, we're there to pre-supply everything that they need so that we can extend those stays and give them everything they need to go down to the surface. To do that, they're going to need over 4,000 kilograms, like almost 9,000 pounds of supplies per mission. That's what we need to go do. So my team's got to bring a heavy lift launch vehicle and a big cargo hauler on top of that launch vehicle. So you well, think of a, you think here on, on Earth, you think of a tractor trailer. The cab's got the guidance, the navigation, the control, the power, and thermal. And we got to haul a big cargo module out there. And our cargo modules, the size of two school buses running in parallel next to each other. Once we get it out there, it's got to autonomously rendezvous, connect to that orbiting command and control center of Gateway. That's our loading dock or ag- aggregation point for exploration of the moon and Mars. Okay, I'm trying to clarify here. Are we talking about two different launches and a rendezvous? Or are we talking about your payloads actually physically attached to the same rocket that carries the people? 
So two different. So we're going to separate. When we send the people up there, they've got a specialized spacecraft that will bring our crew. There's going to be a point in time where we've evolved the rocket that brings the crew, where they can bring some extra cargo with them. But the things they'll probably bring will be permanent pieces of our gateway architecture. The supply piece is an area where the government can lean forward and take more risk. So we're going to send that on a commercial rocket, not a government-developed rocket, with a commercial spacecraft and really try to incubate that new industry of bringing supplies out to deep space. Whose commercial rocket is it? So right now, we've set up a contract. We have a 15-year contract with a $7 billion ordering ceiling. We have awarded so far to SpaceX. So that is our initial deep space logistics supplier. But we've got a provision in this contract. We can continually drive competition and bring on other customers, bring on other suppliers along the way with us. So right now we've got SpaceX launching a Falcon Heavy and their Dragon XL spacecraft that will supply the gateway. But ultimately, we want to grow and bring on some more suppliers and drive competition across the life of this exploration trip out to the moon. Is this a first, Mark? I don't recall it being another time when two craft were sent to the moon in this manner. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a first. You know, when we did this in Apollo, we brought it all with us on one trip, but we weren't able to set up a sustainable infrastructure out there at the moon. We were racing, obviously, in the 60s to, to go show what our country could do, but we, we didn't put in, we didn't have the technology at the time to really enable that sustainable mission. So Right now, we're seeing a huge bow wave of industry really starting to mature in the aerospace industry. We've commercialized low Earth orbit to the point where we're starting to hand that over to commercial industry. We're seeing businesses come in and, and are able to make money. So now it's our job to go incubate that and bring it out to that next big leap all the way out to the moon and ultimately use the moon as a waypoint. If we can go pull some resources from there and set up a, a long-term logistical node, that will help us not have to launch as much from Earth. We can actually use some resources in space and then use that to propel us even farther to Mars. By far, I assume, the longest that anyone will have spent on the moon, correct? Three weeks. Absolutely. The initial missions, we might put the crew on the surface just for a handful of days, maybe a week, but we have them in orbit up to about a month, and we're going to ultimately try to grow that capability with our orbiting platform so that the crews can stay there for 30, 60, 90 days. We've had this International Space Station in low Earth orbit, couple hour drive equivalent of here on Earth to get up a couple hundred miles above us. And we've had crews living there upwards of a year. So we've learned a lot about living in space for a long period of time. Now when we go out to the moon, we get to a new environment, different radiation environment, different thermal environment. And it's to take that learning that we've done over the last 20 years here in low Earth orbit and start to grow that capability even further, which is what we'll need to go to Mars. So they're not setting up a habitat on the surface outside of a landing craft. The habitat will actually be within the spacecraft orbiting, right? So we have plans for that as well. So ultimately, we want to go tap into the resources on the surface. But what we're going to do is start with what we know. We've done a great job at NASA and, again, with our commercial partners, really learning how to live in space. So if we go put this, we're putting in space, we're putting an orbit around the moon, the spacecraft called Gateway which is our aggregation point, our loading dock, where we can go bring all the multiple launches together. So you mentioned the two launches, one with the crew, another one with our pre-positioned supplies. We've got another series of launches that will bring and aggregate a human landing system, which might take three launches in itself to put all the pieces together so that we can have a human lander that can be a gateway. Our crew can get in that lander, go down to the surface. Ultimately, we get to the point where we can bring cargo onto the surface and start to build infrastructure on the surface as well. 
and make pieces of that lander reusable so that they have a way to get up and down from the surface of the moon back up to, to gateway and orbit. So ultimately, you're going to have a standing, existing habitat there that people can come and go to. Yes. On the surface. On the surface. We're working on mobility platforms on the surface as well, rovers that will help us move the crew around so they can go mine different areas. We've got a series of missions that will go to the surface starting at the end of this year without crew, robotically, so we can start to continue to survey the surface, start drilling some samples, trying to understand how to get at some of the ice that we've discovered there and, and start to learn how to to live off the land. Ultimately, a trip to Mars is going to be a huge endeavor, probably a three-year round trip based on the technology we have right now. So we have to find ways to not bring everything with us. And that's the key to going to the moon. The stuff you're actually transporting to the moon, I imagine some of it is just mundane, everyday supplies to keep people alive and working. And some of it is highly specialized equipment. Got to be a mix of those things, right? Absolutely. So for us, I mentioned that 4,000 kilograms or almost 9,000 pounds of supplies, we can kind of break it into those three equal groups, consumables, outfitting, and utilization. So about a third of it for crew consumables. So we plan about 10 kilograms, 20 pounds or so per person per crew day. So consumables are things like oxygen, other air that we need to pressurize our spacecraft, water that the crew will need, obviously, to drink. Also includes hygiene items, their clothes, all the basics of going on a camping trip with your family just in space. And and we don't have a general store right around the corner to go resupply. Another third is outfitting. So basically all the things we'll need to finish building out that campsite. So early on, when we launch some of the permanent modules of Gateway, pieces of that studio apartment in space that will be the loading dock, we may not have all the capability to, to launch it all in place the first time. So we'll use these logistics flights to send up some of the big bulky items that we maybe couldn't launch in place due to the weight or due to the loading environment during launch. And as we upgrade items, we'll use this resupply to be able to change those things out. And again, when we move towards reuse of landing vehicles, we'll also be able to bring up more equipment to enable the crew on the surface and the things they need to take down with them. And then finally, that last third is for utilization or science. So we'll have standard locations on Gateway where we can leverage opportunities for our NASA science teams to understand the environment out there, advance technologies on board, ultimately have a robust and thriving commercial economy because we're finding ways to manufacture things in space and perfect how we do things in space. And and science will help us unlock all those questions about that environment, help us prepare for that vibrant future. So many firsts involved in this initiative and this mission. I imagine to a certain extent you're going to be feeling your way through it as you're doing it the first time. On the other hand, I'm wondering to what extent can you draw on past experience with NASA and commercial providers, for instance, in replenishing the International Space Station and and things like that. Are there lessons that you can bring from the past or are we just making it up as we go at this point? No, there are so many lessons. And it's funny, I look back my whole career and feel like we were always trying to figure out how we get to Mars. And it's always felt to me personally that it's just, it's so far out of reach, right? That we weren't gonna be able to get there. And when you look back in history and you see, gosh, it was 50 plus years ago when we were down on the moon and then we came right back and spent all this time around Earth. But it was all for good purpose. I mean, we went from Apollo landing on the moon and proving what America could do to then the space shuttle program, which really pioneered reuse of spacecraft. I mean, we had a plan originally that we'd be able to launch that space shuttle once a week. And that was very ambitious. We didn't get there, but we learned so much about reusability and how to reuse things. And now we see 
SpaceX re-landing parts of their rocket and new rocket companies coming on board and reuse being a major tenant in driving down the cost of launch. So, so Space Shuttle brought us so much of that for these one or two week trips to orbit. And then assembling the International Space Station, which we started in the late 90s, 1998, and we've had a permanent human presence on the space station since November of 2000. So for 20 years, we've learned to live long duration in space. We've learned how to resupply, how to make sure we pre-position the right things to plan for contingencies, and how to make sure we sustain that presence, even through all the disasters and natural things that we dealt with here on Earth. I mean, we, we had a crew up there during 9-11. We've had a crew up there during this pandemic. We've learned how to endure in space, and we will build off of that knowledge that we had from the space station. Does your logistics expertise extend beyond space? I mean, do you have any background or, or your team have background in just earthbound uh, terrestrial logistics? So we don't. We've been very focused on space. And ever since we started this project for Artemis, we have been keen to try to reach out and learn to the terrestrial logistics world. I'm utterly amazed at how I can order something on my phone right now and have it at my house tomorrow. And space has always lacked the throughput. We've never been able to get to a point where we have high manufacturing rates, where we can start to realize the efficiencies of scale because we've had this one-off set up. And bringing commercial industry with us to space and now the commercialization of low Earth orbit is starting to open that door where we're seeing manufacturers speed up. We're able to set up product lines and have a routine way to bring in those industrial engineering principles and supply chain management principles. So now we are trying to embrace as much as we can, reaching out to the terrestrial logistics world because we need those synergies. And NASA isn't just a space agency that serves one purpose. It serves incubating technology for our entire country and for the entire world. And working across industries is so important for us to do what we do. I mean, you must know in, in your experience in talking to the commercial logistics world just how easy it is for that to fall apart, for black holes of information, for lack of communication, for weird little things to happen on Earth, I would imagine that would be just magnified many, many times in deep space, right? Absolutely, because we don't get second chances in what we do. So communication always is one of the most important factors. And we've been working to set up systems engineering tools that try to, to build resilience in all that architecture. And the communications and learning from the supply chain here on Earth is critical for us to make sure we, we're thinking beyond something that we do once a year, but helping us make sure we set up a robust system that will allow industry to just follow the wake that we're setting here. I want to completely understand just what this is going to look like in terms of resupply and replenishment. I mean, there will be, I assume, as you're indicating, a steady pipeline, a steady flow of material to the moon. How often is it going to be replenished? And will it just be ongoing all the time? I mean, what's your plan there? So the plan with Gateway, so again, Gateway is that orbiting platform. The space station today is a equivalent of like a six-bedroom house. It's, it's a big national asset, a huge laboratory in low Earth orbit. Right now, what we're trying to set up with Gateway is create a studio apartment, a, that loading dock where we can aggregate all the pieces and be as lean as we can so that we can free up as much as we can to really focus on the mission and focus on trying to get down to the surface and then building infrastructure on the surface and trying to leverage the resources on the surface. So right now, the plan is to launch a crew once a year and get to that 30-day complete mission, which means we'll have to launch our cargo supply mission once a year. But mm -hmm. as we start to, to get into that cadence, we hope that that'll grow. We hope we can get to the point where we could do it two times a year. Obviously, money is always the, the biggest factor, right? We are 
funded and supplied by the U.S. taxpayer. We have to continue to show that return on investment. But as we find ways to work with commercial industry, we'll find ways to continue to, to do this more efficiently and to burn the cost down and, and get to the point where we can do this mission not just annually, but a little bit more often than that, and start to, to get that practice in so that we can set our sights on that trip to Mars. Mere scheduling has got to be a challenge. I mean, again, scheduling of terrestrial logistics is challenging enough as it is, but as we all know, launches are determined by weather and other factors, and so you can't 100% know what your schedule is going to be like. Are you allowing for some variance there? Always. We, we have, we've got a lot of margin built in our schedule, and we're, we're working with our international partners. So right now we have on board with us the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency, all building different contributing parts to Gateway. So we are laying out all the schedules of their manufacture and build of different pieces, and our launch planning, our logistic supply planning, our crew planning, and to line all that up, it takes a lot of work and a lot of planning, and we've got margin along the way but we have the experience, right? We've got the expertise of of flying the space shuttle and building the International Space Station. So there's a lot of good expertise on how to do this. And we're we're putting all that work in right now to to just march towards these first goals of getting that initial capability ready in a couple of years. It's heartening to see that international cooperation you just described, although I think and assume that China is doing its own thing, right? Separate? Yeah, so they're doing their own thing. They actually just signed a, a memorandum of agreement with Russia Um, Obviously, Russia was a big partner for us on the International Space Station, but NASA has always done such a great job of behind the scenes, reaching across the aisle and showing how we can all work together despite our diversity and differences of opinions. This is what we need in our world today. We need that great example of embracing the way we all look at things differently. So I wouldn't be surprised down the road we all find ways to, to cooperate just like we do here on Earth when it really needs to happen. So sketch out for me the timetable here. Initially, when the first launch, when you expect to have the whole system established on the moon, even beyond that, when you hope to go to Mars, I mean, you must have all these stages a hoped-for schedule. What is the rough timeline? So game time is here. It's been about a decade that NASA's been working on developing this next deep space crew transportation system, which is Orion and the SLS rocket. And we have been testing that SLS rocket as we speak. There's another test coming up here in mid-March. And the first launch of an uncrewed system with that new spacecraft is scheduled for the end of this year. Maybe it'll be early next year. That'll be Artemis 1. About a year after that, we'll send the first crew on that Orion spacecraft, and we'll do a test. We'll do a flyby of the moon again, and we'll get to that first look like we had back in Apollo with Apollo 8. Mm -hmm. Then Artemis 3 right now is planned for 2024. And for Artemis 3, when we send the crew, we'll have already sent multiple missions that are robotic landers on the surface to try to understand what's going on the moon to start to get the planning going there. We'll have already launched our initial pieces of Gateway, our power propulsion element, which will have the greatest big new solar arrays and a solar electric propulsion capability so that we've got power for 15 years. And then what we're calling HALO, our habitation and logistics outpost, that initial piece that the crew can ingest and get into, and the aggregation point with all the docking ports. That'll be in route up there to be up at, in, in the cislunar orbit. And then we'll have th- thrown our, our logistics module up there ahead of the crew to make sure they've got the supplies they need for that initial mission. So we're, we're shooting for 2024 for that first one. Obviously, what we do is always challenging and hard, but it's an aggressive schedule that we all feel we can go meet and get there in a couple of years. Yeah, two or three years must seem like a blink to you in terms of what you have to accomplish in that time, I would think. 
Uh, yeah, we've, we've been working at this already for my team's been going for a little over two years already. And it was to go run to set up this contract and to get all the requirements in place. And it's been a, a marathon, but it, it sure feels like we're sprinting this marathon. Yeah. And the stretch goal, Mars, what would you like to see there in terms of timetable, if at all possible? So right now, the agency really is working hard to find a way to make a human expedition to Mars in the late 2030s. And I really believe it's possible with the way we're setting this program up. We're trying to have that stretch goal, but also to make sure we stay lean and agile and don't over-engineer the pieces we need to get there, make sure we continue to drive innovation, but don't make it so perfection that takes us too much to get there and and find that right balance. So I'm, I'm very confident we can get there. And in the next decade or so, we'll be just as focused as we are to get on the moon right now. We'll be just as focused at that human presence on Mars. Well, this all sounds like, if you'll pardon the, for my use of the phrase, a giant leap uh, in terms of ambitions of the space program. Sounds like a fantastic initiative. And uh, Mark Wies of NASA, thank you so much for sharing time with me to explain how this is all going to go. It's very exciting. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Bob. We appreciate your time, and we appreciate all your listeners who are engaged with this, and they're on this journey with us. We're going together. To the moon and beyond. Okay. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was my conversation with Mark Weiss of NASA, talking about the creation of a deep space supply chain on the moon and beyond. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.